News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Botti in Washington. Today is Monday, February 27th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Nigerians wait anxiously as food counting continues. We are multi-ethnicity in this country. We want a leader that will join us together to see us being stronger. I want a leader that will show selfless service. We hear the expectations of some Nigerian voters. Civil society group protests Tunisian President Kar Saiz alleged racist speech. Malawi says cholera cases have started to drop. Tropical cyclone Freddy leaves trail of destruction in Southern Africa. There was very strong concerted action on the ground to evacuate people out of harm's way. Limited initial reports uh, speak of seven fatalities, um, which is seven too many. And RIP is on the increase in Guinea-Conakry. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's pause and our Black History Month facts of the day are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Nigerians are awaiting results from Saturday's presidential, parliamentary, and gubernatorial elections. Already, the parties of two of the three leading presidential candidates, Peter Obi of the Labour Party and Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, have been complaining about the performance of the Independent National Electoral Commission, also known as INEC. VOS Peter Clotty is on assignment covering the Nigerian elections. The mood is a little somber, however, the expectations are so high. People just can't wait for INEC to begin collating the results. So everybody is expecting because, you know, there have been allegations and counter-allegations flowing around. So INEC is expected to address all these questions that people are asking and the doubt people are currently expressing about how the process is unfolding. Yes, talking about allegations, uh, I read from local media that uh, the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, that's uh, Atiku Abubakar's party, and uh, Peter Obi's Labour Party have both been complaining about the Electoral Commission not being able to upload results from the different polling areas. What do you know about this allegation? The allegations are indeed true. Both of these two political parties issued press releases alluding to what you just said. They want and they are calling on the Independent National Electoral Commission or INEC to quickly upload these of what they describe as authentic figures and not what they described as engineered or massaged figures. They want authentic figures as occurred in the polling stations reported earlier to be uploaded. They said there were allegations of voter rigging, uh, voter in figures being massaged, TIPEX being used to change some of the figures. So they are worried that there could be some hidden agenda to tilt the election in a particular party's favor. So they are calling on INEC to act expeditiously load authentic figures into their portal or their system in order to ensure that the voting process, the trust that Nigerians had, for which reason enthusiasm was high, uh, for their votes to count. Peter, from your advantage point, uh, how would you describe the overall turnout in Saturday's vote? 
Well, in all the polling stations that I visited, the conduct was smooth, it was peaceful. There was a show of force by the security agencies. You had police officers in every polling station that I visited. There was also a joint patrol team between the army and the military. They had sophisticated weapons, well-armed, and they were moving from polling stations to polling stations. There were also movement restrictions. If you are not accredited, you are not allowed to go to certain places. If you live in an area, you go to where you have registered to vote. They will not allow you outside that cordon. They told me that these were measures implemented to ensure that people feel confident, people feel safe, people are not intimidated or harassed to go to the polls and elect who they want to elect. Peter, thank you very much again. Thank you very much, James. That was viewers Peter Clote speaking with us from the Nigerian capital, Abuja, where he is on assignment covering the Nigerian presidential election. Peter also spoke with some Nigerian voters about their expectations of the next president of Nigeria. My name is Ejimo Fortune and Cynthia. What is your message to the people of Nigeria, those who are voting now <laughs> and those who will come back later to vote? Well, we all intend for a good Nigeria. I think a lot of us have gone through some issues for the past years. So it is time for our vote to count. And that has been promised to us by the government. So I advise every citizen of Nigeria who is eligible to vote to come out and vote. Your vote will count. And that good governance we want in Nigeria will be applicable here. So that's what I want. We want a good Nigeria, we want a new Nigeria, and want a perfect Nigeria for us and for the children coming up. About Sunday, Abbas. You just voted, Abi. For those who are sitting home, who are not here yet, or who have not gone out to vote yet, what is your message to them? My message to them is to come out and vote. Anybody with PVC and is sitting at home that is not out to vote, you are the enemy of Nigeria. People are working with the notion that election does not count, or it doesn't matter. It matters this time around with the introduction of beavers by Modu's voters' accreditation system. It counts. Let them come out and cast your vote. Ensure that you elect the leader that you want them to lead you. The leader with vision, the leader with capacity, the leader with the, have the capability to take us to the next level. Because the economy is crumbling. Unemployment is on alarming rates. People don't have money to eat. The hospital is not working. The road is very bad. These are what we are clamoring for. And it takes a leader with the vision to eliminate or take us out of this place. My name is Elijah Ahmadou Ibrahim. What was your criteria in deciding on whom to vote for? So the criteria I want to look for this time around, one, I want to look for any leader of any party. It's not even the leader of the party. I want to look for a personality that I believe in my own assessment that we have empathy, that we forgive Nigerians, that we have significant improvement for the lives of the Nigerians, that we bring about peace, peaceful living among the Nigerians. We are multi-ethnicity in this country. We want a leader that will join us together to see us being stronger. I want a leader that will put infrastructure first. I want a leader that will show selfless service. The views of some Nigerian voters on election day, they spoke with viewers Peter Clote on assignment covering Nigeria's presidential and parliamentary elections. 
Tropical Cyclone Freddy, which hit Madagascar last week, is sweeping across southern Africa, leaving a trail of destruction and threatening Mozambique and neighboring countries with heavy rains and widespread flooding. Lisa Stein reports for VA from Geneva. National Office for Risk and Disaster Management reports at least 16,600 people have been affected and about 4,500 houses have been flooded or damaged by the strong winds and rains unleashed by Cyclone Freddy. However, World Meteorological Organization spokeswoman Clara Nellis says loss of life was relatively limited in Madagascar. There were very good, accurate early warnings. There was very strong concerted action on the ground to evacuate people out of harm's way. Limited initial reports uh, speak of seven uh, fatalities, um, which is seven too many. And this really underlined the importance of the ongoing UN early warnings for all campaign. Cyclone Freddy has moved on to Mozambique, which has been dealing with the impact of this severe storm since it made landfall on Friday. Although hurricane force winds pose a serious risk, Nulla says the greater threat comes from the dangerous and exceptional levels of rainfall which is being dumped in Mozambique. There's the potential for many months worth of rainfall to fall in a matter of days. And what we need to bear in mind is that the soils in Mozambique are already saturated. The river basin levels are already past alert level because there have been very, very heavy seasonal rainfalls so far. Mozambique's National Institute for Disaster Management estimates flooding in central and southern Mozambique might affect up to 1.75 million people. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs warns the confluence of multiple threats is likely to create a severe humanitarian crisis. WMO spokeswoman Nulla says Mozambique is not the only country feeling the wrath of Cyclone Freddy. As in previous years, she says significant flooding is expected in the neighboring countries of Malawi, Zimbabwe, and parts of South Africa. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, February 27th. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley's post and our Black History Month facts of the day. Several society groups in Tunisia, including journalists, held an anti-racism protest over the weekend against President Karzai's speech denouncing African immigrants in Tunisia. According to Reuters, President Sai ordered the expulsion of undocumented migrants, especially those from sub-Saharan Africa, and said that immigration is a plot aimed at changing his country's population. The African Union issued a statement expressing deep shock and concern at the substance of the statement. The protest was organized by the Union of Tunisian Journalists and Non-Governmental Organizations. Elysia Falkman is a freelance journalist who also attended the protest. From Tunis, she tells me the protest was peaceful and energetic, but sad, especially because of the absence of people from sub-Saharan Africa. It wasn't one of the, the massive protests that we've seen before with the, the National Salvation Front directly protesting against President Kaisai. It was about 500 or so people. It was a very positive atmosphere, but as one woman said, 
I never thought I would see the day when I had to march against this. It was peaceful. Um, there were no confrontations with police. But certainly one thing you, you really noticed in the streets and certainly on the march was the absence of people who were of sub-Saharan origin. And one of the speakers at the start of the march, Sadia Mosper, who set up an association called Menemti, which is the association that really pushed for the anti-racism law in 2018, she said, you know, I want to speak to the people who aren't here, who are effectively in hiding and staying at home. So there, there was a, a quite a sad note at the same time. This is about the president's anti-African immigrant speech protest. How would you describe the treatment of African immigrants there? I mean, what have you seen so far? Well, we first became aware of yet another round of these sort of mass arrests about two or three weeks ago. There's an organization called the Tunisian Forum for Economic and Social Rights. They're very good at documenting this, and they they said that 300 or so people had been arrested and rounded up. And shortly after, the president gave his speech, and it's all accelerated. The same thing happened last year, but it, it steadily got worse and worse. I mean, I've actually seen violent attacks against immigrants myself, and certainly friends of mine who are of sub-Saharan origin said that insults are, you know, it's a regular thing. So there is a, a general undertone of really quite a sort of racist attitude. But it was never this bad. That's the thing to understand. It has changed. And what people have been telling me is the fact that the president has effectively endorsed that kind of behavior makes them even more fearful than before. As you said, even the African Union has criticized the president about his comments. I mean, what can you tell us about uh, this and other reaction? I'm not surprised the African Union has come so forcefully because what a, a lot of people that I've been speaking to who are of sub-Saharan origin have said to me is that particularly people who've been here a long time is that they feel sort of personally hurt. A lot of people who are, are here, are, you know, they, they've paid to be here. They're students or they've come to work experience or internships or they do have work permits. So they feel it's very unfair. One person who was on the march, he's somebody who's over here, you know, on a long contract for work. And, you know, he's a professional. So really what they feel is that it's an insult against, you know, all black people, but also an insult against the different countries of Western and Sub-Saharan Africa. Because one of the things that the president said is that this is some kind of conspiracy to Africanize Tunisia. Elisia, thank you so much. A pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. That was freelance journalist Elysia Falkman speaking with us from the Tunisian capital, Tunis. Malawi has announced that it is now seeing a drop in cases of cholera, which has so far killed over 1,500 people since the start of the outbreak. Last March, the Presidential Task Force on Cholera told a press conference over the weekend that for the past week, cases have dropped by 13.8%. It also said that the country is now recording an average of 500 cases per day compared to 700 last week. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The decrease in cholera cases comes two weeks after Malawi President Lazarus Chakwera launched a nationwide campaign to end the outbreak. Statistics show that the country's deadliest cholera outbreak in history has so far affected nearly 48,000 
385 people across the country. Kumbize Kandoluchiponda is Malawi's Minister of Health. She told a televised press conference that for the past week, cases of waterborne disease have decreased by an average of less than 500 cases per day compared to daily average of 700 cases in the previous weeks. She said the drop is largely because of the anti-cholera campaign launched two weeks ago and that more is being done to end the outbreak. We want everybody to be responsible. Traditionally, there's village development committees. They have to be part of the whole thing. Some Malawians have died because of faith beliefs. They don't go to the hospitals. They don't allow to get drips. You bring the vaccine, they say, no, we cannot get the vaccine because of the beliefs. We need to engage them. The campaign known as Titetse Kolila, or Let's End Kolila, focuses on repairing water kiosks across the country and helping people construct toilets in their homes. The cholera situation daily update from the Public Health Institute of Malawi show that as of Sunday, February 26, Malawi recorded 390 cases compared to 505 two weeks ago. Health rights campaigner George Jobe of Malawi Health Equity Network says the drop is largely to various interventions by the anti-cholera campaign resources for health and the uh, finances. We saw the private sector, like one of the banks, making a donation of money, and an appeal was extended that more resources are required. Some of the country's development partners have also financed the anti-cholera campaign. For example, the UN's children agency, UNICEF, has, among other assistance, contributed $2 million US dollars toward the campaign. Rudolf Shivenk is country representative for UNICEF in Malawi. It's really a necessary step to accelerate our efforts to address the cholera outbreak. We have to step up. We have to do more. Um, as the Honorable Minister has said, uh, we are seeing slight improvements, but now is the time really to act. In the meantime, Malawi is waiting for a consignment of about 7.6 million doses of cholera vaccine it requested from the World Health Organization last month. Lameki Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Again in Conakry, the number of rape cases is increasing due to a fear by parents to report the crime to authorities. Recently, over 200 girls were raped in 2022. According to the Gender Protection Office, some of the perpetrators are in court to answer for their assault, while others are on the run. The office blames parents and victims of failing to report rape to authorities so that the perpetrators can be arrested. Reporter Karin Kamara has more from Kunakri. The majority of those raped were either school-going girls or pupils, housemates or hawkers, with their ages ranging from 18 and below. They are usually raped by people they trust and depend on. The category of people often accused of rape include teachers, drivers, or even caretakers, like parents. Maria Maturi was 16 when she was raped last year by a class teacher. She says after washing her teacher's clothes, she was trying to change her own clothes when suddenly a teacher entered the room. To her greatest surprise, he forcefully grabbed her and pushed her on the bed. She says as a girl, she had no power to push back her teacher toward her. Her teacher has fled Conakry for an unknown destination and Mariama has dropped out of school because she feels ashamed. 
According to the Director General of the Office of Gender Protection, Children and Ethics, Police Commissioner Marie Gomez, 281 girls were raped last year and added that was due to the failure of parents and victims to report the crime. She says rape has always existed, but it has always been a taboo, and no one talks about it. She says it was always being kept secret between the family and in some cases with the help of local authorities and religious leaders. She says those committing the crime are close to them, Quranic and school teachers, drivers, and at times parents themselves. She says from January 2022 to December 31st, they registered 281 cases. Marie Gomez added that the increase in the number of rapes started between 2020 and 2021 with annual report of 50 to 60 cases. The Guinean Penal Code regarding rape is severe. Last week, a man was sentenced in Kanka in Upper Guinea to 15 years imprisonment for raping an underaged girl. Many others are still behind bars. Reporting for VOA Africa, I am Karim Kamara in Conakry. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is something O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, something. Good Monday morning to you too. James, we begin the sport with results of matches played in the CAF Champions League this past weekend. Tanzania's Simba SC beat Uganda's Vipers 1-0 at the St. Mary's Stadium in the outskirts of Kampala in the East African Derby in Group C, while in the north it was Osperance who defeated Egyptian side Zamalek 2-0 in Ray to remain top of Group D. Congo's AS Vita Club picked up their first win in Group A after seeing off Algerian outfit JS Kabile 1-0 at home on Saturday. In Libya, Paulo D'Souza's first half penalty was all Elmerich needed as it secured their first Group D victory with a 1-0 win over Algeria CL Brozudad at the Matayas of Benonia Stadium. Defending champions, weighted athletic club held their nerve to edge out Angola's Petro Duluanda by a long goal in Casablanca on Friday and notch up their first victory in the group stages of the CAF Champions League. Record champions Al Hockley and 2016 winners Memelody Sundowns played to a 2-2 draw in Cairo as Al Hockley hunt for a maiden Group B victory. Staying with football news, host Egypt crashed out of the CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations after they were torn apart by ruthless Senegal 4-0 on Saturday. Senegal had already qualified for the quarterfinals before facing Mahmoud Gabba's young pharaohs in the final Group A fixture at the Cairo International Stadium. The result eliminated Egypt who finished with just one point behind Mozambique, Nigeria and Senegal. In the meantime, the Flying Eagles of Nigeria beat Mozambique 2-0 in Ismailia to qualify for the quarterfinals of the CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations. The Flying Eagles scored two goals in the first half through Samson Lowell and Ibrahim Mohamed to secure second place in Group A. The record seven-time champions of the CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations moved six points, while Senegal topped the group with nine points following their 4 nil thrumping of host nation Egypt in Cairo. 
In athletics, Africa's 100 meters record holder, Ferdinand Omanyala, set two world leading times following his victory at the second leg of Athletics Kenya Track and Field weekend meet at the Nyanyu National Stadium on Saturday evening. The reigning Commonwealth Games 100 meters champion set a new lead of 9.81 seconds to erase the 9.86 seconds time he set on Friday at the same venue. Omanyala beat Samuel Imeta to second place in 9.94 seconds and South Africa's Enrico Behintes to third in 10.22 seconds. We're on the right track just to maintain so that uh, August and September gets us still in the same shape. Uh, I think I'm um, going off for like one and a half months uh, just training and then the next race is on 12th in South Africa and then the next will be on 26th in South Africa still and then the Botswana Concentral Tour and then you come back for the Kipkeno Classic. And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a very good Monday. It is time now for our Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 27. On this day, 1988, Debbie Thomas became the first African-American figure skater to win a medal, a bronze, at the Winter Olympics in Calgary, Canada. Thomas also won the World Figure Skating Championship in 1986. She went on to become a medical doctor. Also, on this day in 1853, the first black YMCA was organized in Washington, D.C. by Anthony Bowen. Back then, African Americans were excluded from the existing YMCAs. On this day in 1902, African American and world-renowned opera singer Mariam Anderson was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She went on to be the first African American to perform at the White House. And that's it for this Monday, February 27th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. I am James Bosch.